Did Jesus claim to be God? Well, Dan Brown doesn't think so. Here's what he said through a character called Teabing about the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. At this gathering, Teabing said, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course the divinity of Jesus. I don't follow his divinity. My dear, Teabing declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Not the Son of God? Right, Teabing said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on. You're saying that Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? Relatively close one at that, Teabing added. Richard Dawkins doesn't think so either. Now he wrote, and I quote, There is no good historical evidence that Jesus ever thought he was divine. And the Quran says this about Jesus. And behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, didst thou say unto men, Worship me and my mother as gods in the derogation of Allah? And he will say, Glory to thee, never could I say what I had no right to say. Surah 5, 116. Did Jesus claim to be God? Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, we learn about Jesus, God, and the relationship between the two. And we also learn about something about who we are as human beings in relation to God. Now, our passage continues on from the end of chapter 7 uh, in uh, chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, because if you look at your Bibles, you see at the beginning of chapter 8, uh, it says, a little note there, it says, the earliest manuscript do not include chapter 7, 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. That is, the earliest copies of John's Gospel didn't have this little bit uh, that's in the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Ah, they're a great story, uh, probably an authentic story about Jesus, uh, but not in the original John's Gospel, probably, uh, which is why the early copies don't have it, uh, and so therefore we won't be reading it and preaching from it. In fact, chapter 8, verse 12, should be continuing on from the end of chapter 7, verse 52. And in chapter 7, you will recall that Jesus was at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus had been speaking to the Jews in the temple courts. And if you go to chapter 8, verse 20, you can see that he is still there. And so we know the historical context for this passage is Jesus in the temple courts at this feast called the Feast of Booths. Now you might remember from about three weeks back when we looked at chapter 7 that the Feast of Booths was to commemorate how they, they lived in tents when God first rescued them uh, from Egypt. About 1500 years before this God's people were slaves in Egypt. God rescued them out of Egypt uh, and take them out towards the promised land uh, and when they come out they have to live in tents like got no houses, right? Uh, and so, um, once a year they all live in tents uh, for a week to remember that. Uh, there was also the Harvest Festival uh, and if we saw, uh, if you remember from last time one of the ceremonies of that festival was the pouring out of water from the middle of the temple which flowed outwards and came out which pictured the, the prophecies of Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14 
uh, about how from the temple the living water was going to flow out and, and uh, bring life to all the land and beyond. Uh, and we saw that that actually was fulfilled in Christ, who is the true temple. It gives the Spirit who brings life uh, to God's people. But today I want to tell you something else about the festival of booths during Jesus' time. At that time, they had four big lamps lit in the temple court. Huge lamps. And they would have great celebrations held around it with people holding torches and dancing and singing songs of praise. And these lights from the temple shone over all Jerusalem. Because that was picturing the, 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 the other prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 60, for example, uh, that we read earlier, uh, speaks how Jerusalem was going to be a light for the nations because God's glory would be seen in her. Let me just read the first couple of verses of Isaiah 60. It's rise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings, the brightness of your rising. The picture is Jerusalem being the light for the nations. They're all coming into the light of God's glory that is in Jerusalem. And so in the festival of booths, they make these lights in the temple. As a picture there. And look forward to the time when God's light will shine out from the city. And it's in this context that Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The glory of God that shines from Jerusalem and gives light to the nations, that draws them in, that's me. The light that reveals God and draws His people, that's me. The, the, the promised light to the Gentiles that bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's me. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, light and darkness is one of the motifs that keeps coming up again in John's Gospel. Our darkness is symbolic for evil and ignorance in John. Light speaks of God's revelation. And so the fact that Jesus is the light of the world means that, that Jesus is the one who reveals God to the world. He's the one who shows God's glory, who does His will, who reveals His character. He shines, He shows the way. But the light that Jesus brings not only reveals God, but, but exposes people. It, it shows us up as sinners. Back in chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, now we read about this. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. The people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and doesn't come to the light. It's like the, you know, when you go to your kitchen at night, Turn on the light, what happens? Phew, all the cockroaches run away. Right? They turn the light on. Because they, they, they hate the light. They don't want to be exposed. And, and those who hate God, whether consciously or unconsciously, will run away. They will flee. They, or they will oppose the light. And they don't want to be shown for who they are. And we see that actually happening in this passage today. As the light shows. But the most important implication for us of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world is what Jesus tells us straight away afterwards. He says, verse 12 again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
following the light. Now that was a familiar theme for the Jews, isn't it? Remember this is the festival of booths? Remembering how the time when God brought them out of Egypt? What, well, what about following the light? How does following the light mix with that? Any ideas? Anyone? What light would they follow back those days? Yes, a pillar of fire. Isn't it? Remember when God brought them out of, Israel, out of Egypt? They followed a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the pillar of fire shed light on the camp. It was God's presence with them. Shed light on the camp, shows them where to go. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Follow me like your forefathers did when they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. I will lead you to eternal life. Jesus claims to be the light of the glory of God. Draw the nations to Him. He claims to be the light that you follow as you head towards eternal life. These are, these are big claims. He claims to be the one who gives eternal life. And the Pharisees also dispute. You say, can't be true. Why? Because you're not bringing any witnesses to back you up. This is unverifiable. How do we know if you're telling the truth? He's just saying it. Chapter 8, verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, does this sound a little bit familiar? You've done something like this before? We have, haven't we? Back, back in chapter 5, John gave... Uh, so Jesus gave three witnesses because, you know, everything established in the testimony of two or three witnesses. He gives three witnesses. He showed that John the Baptist bore witness about him. He showed that the works that his father did through him bears witness about him. And that the father himself, number three, the father himself bears witness about him through the Old Testament scriptures that speak about him. He's already done that, actually. So he's not going to reply. He's not going to replay that argument again. This time he's going to go for another angle. And he's going to argue that he doesn't actually need any witnesses. Verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. They don't know, but Jesus knows, and we know because we've read the beginning of John's Gospel, that Jesus comes from the very being of God himself. He has come from the Father. He's the Word made flesh. And we know that he is going back to the Father. And so we know that he is in essence God. Now if he is God, then there is no one higher than him, is there? If he is God, then there is no one who can he doesn't need anyone to authenticate him. He doesn't need anyone to testify to him. Because there's, there's no higher judge to go to in order to get a ruling about him. There's no, no boss people can go to to get a, a reference for him. He is God. God defines reality. What he says is true by, by definition. Now, of course, the Jews don't know this. They, they're making up their minds about Jesus based on what they can, what they can see with their eyes. 
They judge, verse 15, according to the flesh. But Jesus doesn't. He judges no one in that particular way. How does he judge? He says, verse 16, Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He judges with God's judgment. He sees people as the Father sees them. He sees people with the Father's eyes. And his judgment is the judgment of the Father. So, Jesus has argued that he doesn't really need any other witnesses because of who he is. But now he's going to approach it from another angle again. In verse 17 he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Right now we said there's no one above God who can authenticate God, who can, who can pass judgment on Him, who can say yes, right, or no, wrong, He's wrong, but, but, ah, but within God, there is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so while it is perfectly right for the Son to be self-authenticating, it is also perfectly right for the Father to bear witness about Him. I bear witness about myself, Jesus says, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay, so two witnesses, well, well, you're one, but you can't see the other one. Where's the other one? Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you, neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. If you knew me, then you would know the Father. Because I, I perfectly reveal the Father. Everything the Father is, I am. You think you know me, but actually you don't know me. Because if you knew me, you will know the Father. Now that's a big claim as well, isn't it? And, you know, this is not secret teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples. He's, he's saying all this in a public place. And, He's saying this, verse 20, in the, in the treasury, in the courts of the temple. And he expects some reaction. Expect these are the kind of things that make people want to kill Jesus. So. But verse 20 continues, in fact, that no one arrested him. Because his time had not yet come. It wasn't time for him yet to die and rise again. So he wasn't arrested. But that being the case, he warned them about what would happen when his hour did come. He said to them in verse 21, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is going away, and they cannot come, and they will die in their sin. You see, Jesus, we know, is going to the Father. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend to heaven, go back to the Father, and they are going to be left behind. And they would die in their sins because they, well, they rejected the one, the only one, who could save them. But they don't understand what he said. We understand. They don't understand. They're, they're, they're puzzled. They come up with their own theory. Why is Jesus saying he's going away and he cannot come and all this? So he said, verse 22, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going you cannot come? Jesus has to explain again. A bit more clearly, he says, verse 23, Look, 
You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Very clear, no? Right? I, Jesus says, I am from God. He is the word made God. He is come down from heaven. So that's where he's going to go. They are from here. They can't go. And then Jesus says, you better believe me in this. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. Why? For unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe, then you cannot come. You cannot come to the Father. You will die in your sins. Now, if you look at verse 24 carefully, as you look at verse 24 again, you will see the words, I am he. You see that? Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that is a translation, you know, the English we have is a translation of the original, which is in the Greek. Uh, and our English translators, quite rightly, have to add the word he there in order for the sentence to make grammatical sense. Because actually in the Greek there's no word he. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, you have to, if you're writing in English, then you must have proper grammar, so you have to put the, the, the word he. But if you realize the word he is not actually there, then you can say, what is, it, what is he talking about? Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Well, back in the Old Testament, when Mo God appeared to Moses, Moses asked God, what is your name? And what did God say? I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. That's, what the, that's where you get the word name Yahweh. I am who I am. And Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. You cannot be saved. You cannot follow me. You cannot come. And so he's not only claiming to be from God. He is claiming to be the I am. To, to be Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And so important is his claim is that unless you believe him, you will die. In your sins. You cannot be saved. Now, this is a shocking claim. Slightly veiled. Reason to challenge him. 8 verse 25. And say, who, 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 who are you? Are you, are you, are you, are you actually, have you, got, have you got, have you heard it right? Are you, are you actually saying that, that you are Yahweh, the God of Israel? Maybe we missed that, you know, we, we, we missed you say the he bit. Um, we can't quite believe our ears. Let me ask you again, who are you? And Jesus says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much more to say about you and much more to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Interesting, isn't it? Same time Jesus is claiming to be God, he is also claiming to come from God. He is sent from God. He tells the world what he has heard from God. But then he just said he is God. So how does this work? Well, verse 27. 
they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. That is, the one whom he has come from, the one who has sent him, the one whom he is revealing is the Father. You see, Jesus is God, but he is not God the Father. He's not the same person as the Father. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. The Son relates to the Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son tells the world what is heard from the Father. But the Son is not the Father, yet the Son is still God. So, verse 28, he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about being lifted up, he's talking about his death on the cross, he's pointing for it, prophesying about that, he says, Then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Again, you see those two things in the one verse? You will know that I am, He is God, and at the same time, that I do nothing on my own authority, but whatever the Father tells me. He obeys the Father. And yes, indeed, we see that most clearly at the cross where He is crucified. At the cross we see that Jesus died for us. But more importantly, he died in obedience to the Father. He freely gave his life for our salvation, to take the punishment for our sins. And he did that according to the Father's will. He was being obedient to the Father. You know, there's a, a very nice song that we've uh, sung in various places that talks about how Jesus was crucified, laid behind a stone, and how he, uh, he thought that he this is the last line, he says, and he thought of me above all. Actually, of course Jesus did think of us, isn't it? Uh, but he didn't think of me above all. Because one person is thinking of above all, it's who? It's the Father, isn't it? being obedient to the Father. He's there to glorify the Father. So, when Jesus dies for our salvation, he's, 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 he's being obedient to the Father. He's showing the Father. And yet, at the same time, He's showing that He is God. Because if He is not God, then His death for sin is no use. If He is not God, then His death for sin will not be sufficient to save us. If He is a mere man, even a perfect man, then maybe He can die for the sins of one other man. But He can't die for anyone. But the fact that he is God means that his death is of infinite worth. And it means that he is big enough to take the punishment for us all. And when Jesus lifted up on the cross, we see both those things. We see that Jesus is God. He has to be. He is the great I Am. And we see that he is the Son who is obedient to the Father. As he elaborates on this in verse 29, He who sent me is always with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He is, Jesus, the Son is equally God. He's just as much the I am as the Father is, and yet what does he do? He always does things to please the Father. But that is part of what it means to be the Son. And the Father is always with the Son. And so again, Within God we have persons in relationship. Is Jesus God? Yes, He is. 
Is Jesus the Father? No, he's not. He's both God and sent by the Father. Now we need to reflect the, both the unity and the distinction uh, in, in well, the way we live and the way we pray. Sometimes I hear people praying, Dear Father, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Right? That's wrong, isn't it? Why? Because the Father didn't die on the cross, the, the Son died on the cross. We should pray, thank you, Father, for giving your Son to die on the cross for us. Or sometimes people pray, Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us life, Father. Yeah? As if the Father and Jesus are um, interchangeable names for the same for the same person. Rather, you're talking to the Son, or you're talking to the Father. Uh, nothing wrong with praying to the Son, uh, but the usual way to pray, the normal way to pray, is through the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Okay? Uh, so that's the normal way to pray, because there's, there's one God in three persons. And to, speak God, to speak about God properly, uh, to, and speak to God properly, then you need to distinguish the persons, but never separate the persons. Distinguish them, and we don't separate them. More about that in the Doctrine Seminar, September 16th, 17th, uh, Doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Uh, okay, sweat you have Well, you know, Jesus is teaching about this, and, and people, some of those Jews in the crowd, are going, oh, yeah, we believe this. Um, we, we, we think you're telling the truth. But I think probably they don't really understand much. They don't, haven't really caught what Jesus really said. But, you know, as he's saying this in verse 30, many believe in him, but the funny thing is, Jesus didn't just grab them. Right? He immediately says something that's kind of like rubs them up on the wrong way. And he's not doing it by accident either, because he wants to make sure that they're very clear about what they're coming to. Watch what happens in the next few verses. Chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you abide, you say you believe in me, okay, well, remain in my word. If you really believe in me, then abide in my word, remain in my word. That will show. You stick with me. And if you stick with me, then what happens? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, from our vantage point in history, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we can look back and we know, what is the truth that sets people free? Well, it's the truth of the gospel, isn't it? It's the truth of who Jesus is, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his kingly reign, but that hasn't happened yet at this point. So what Jesus is promising is they stick with him, they persevere in following him, then the truths of the gospel reveal to them as, they, as it happens, and as they hear, and they say, see what happens, and they receive the, the truths of the gospel, then they will be set free. The problem is, they don't like being told they're not free. Verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you can say, you become free? You know, when you're at work, or you're at home, it's a bit frustrating, huh? When you propose a solution, but then people don't like it. Why? Because they don't admit there's a problem. You ever have that at work? Yeah. 
You get it all the time in evangelism, don't we? People can't see the value of the cross until they realize the terrible, terrible situation we are in because of sin and judgment. Well, these Jews don't appreciate the fact that the truth will set them free because they don't think they're slaves to anyone. You say, yeah, yeah, our ancestors, they were slaves in Egypt. And yes, God rescued them and, and set them free, but that's not where we are. What's, what's the need for rescue? Not in Sodom's please. What does Jesus say? Well, he answers them in verse 34. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Ah. So the slavery Jesus is talking about is not like this. Uh, slavery in Egypt when they were you know, having to build pyramids or what have you. Right? The slave that answers. No, no, this is a slavery to sin. This is the, the reality to which that slavery in Egypt was pointing forward to. And Jesus said, that that's the real slavery. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. But as people who are sinners, then that, well, that is true, isn't it? Human beings are enslaved to sin. If you put a drug addict in a room with his drugs, in a syringe, is he going to take it? Yes, he will, isn't he? He'll take it. He's got moral responsibility. No one's putting a gun to his head and forcing him to take it. So he's got so-called freedom not to take it. But in the end, 99 times out of 100, he will take it. Why? Because he's enslaved to the drug. Even though he knows it's going to kill him. And our addiction to sin is, is worse than that. That's uh, 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 addiction to drugs. It's hundred times we will sin. We are sinners. That's the way we are. Anyone who sins, Jesus says, is enslaved to sin. You can't stop hopelessly addicted to it and in the end it's going to kill you. You need to be rescued. And Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. The only hope of rescue from the slavery of sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the perfect life of Jesus, he lived a life without sin. In his death, he paid the penalty for your sin so that you can be forgiven. In his resurrection, he was the first fruit of those who will rise in glory. And he comes as the Lord. And we know that when he comes again, he will transform us so that we will be without sin in his presence. And so we can be released from our slavery to sin now and fully free from sin when Christ returns. Because the gospel truth sets us free. And it's a good thing that slavery works different from sonship. Verse 35, Jesus says this to encourage them. He says, look, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If you are a slave, it doesn't mean you have to be a slave forever. Slaves can be redeemed. Slaves can be ransomed. If you're a son, well, you're the son now. You can't change, right? You're always the son. Jesus is the son. No danger that he's going to be kicked out of a relationship with the father. He's part of the intimate family of the Trinity. But you are the slaves. You can be changed. You can be rescued. And who can rescue you? Well, it's the son who can rescue you. 
He's the one who can set the slaves free. And if the son sets the slaves free, then, well, they really can be free. Verse 36, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so Jesus offers hope. He offers release. And he can free them from the slavery of sin. And they are taking umbrage because they don't like to be called slaves. And they want to say, well, actually we are sons. Because we are the sons of Abraham. And Jesus, verse 37, I know you're the offspring of Abraham. Physically anyway. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Well, Jesus speaks from his father, and they do whatever their father wants. Now, so even though the offspring of Abraham physically is something else, he means something else by your father, doesn't he? What's he implying there? So they answer him, verse 39, indignantly, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, actually no. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. Abraham's not their father. And by rejecting Jesus, they are mimicking their true father. So they come back to him, well, it's not Abraham, then it must be God. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God. And Jesus says, cannot be. If God were your father, verse 42, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I've not come from my own accord, but he sent me. Friends, if you don't love Jesus, then God cannot be your father. Jesus comes from God. He comes from the Father. He does everything that the Father does. He perfectly reveals the Father. If God is your Father, then you will love Jesus. They don't love Jesus. Then God is not their Father. They don't listen to Jesus. And they don't understand Jesus. Verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I say? Just because they're dumb? No, it is because, verse 43, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They don't want to listen. Because deep in their heart, they want to obey their true father. And it's not Abraham, and it's not God. Who is it? Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. Fancy being told you're the son of the devil. People like to say, oh, you know, we're all children of God. And, boy, in one sense, our creation, but now, Jesus says to those who don't believe in him, your father is the devil. My father, I do whatever he wants. And you do what your father wants. Your father doesn't want you to obey me. Doesn't want you to listen to me. And it's exactly what you're doing. That's what being a slave of sin is like. 
You know, if you're hooked on those drugs, go back to the drug illustration, you're hooked on those drugs, no one has to make you take it. You actually want to take it. That is your will. Maybe you don't want to take it, but you actually want to take it, you know what I mean? No one forces it. That's your, that's your will. And Jesus says to the Jews, though it's applicable to any human being who's not following him, look, you are hooked on sin. And your will is to do your father's desire. And your father, the devil, verse 44 continues, he was a murderer from the beginning, nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, don't tell lies, that's devilish. These people, they believe the lie, reject the truth. And verse 45, he says, Look, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. If you come and spun a story that's nice and easy for them to take, they might have believed it. Jesus tells the truth and they don't believe because he tells the truth. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? Nothing sticks. Jesus doesn't sin. As if I tell the truth, then why don't you believe me? And the answer Jesus gives, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you belong to God, then you will long to hear your Father's voice. You will listen to Him as He has revealed Himself in His Son. But if you do not belong to God, then your heart is somewhere else. Your desire is to do something else. And not submit to And the Jews are shocked to think. These are religious Jews. They are shocked to think. Do you consider by Jesus to be children of the devil? Consider by Jesus to be not of God? Now, tell me, what do people do when they don't like what someone says about them? Try to attack the person, uh huh? That's exactly what happens. So, verse 48, what do they say? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Poor Samaritans. Jesus doesn't even entertain that Samaritan bit. And he comes back on the demon. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see that. They dishonor him by saying that he is demonized. But what does Jesus do? He honors the Father. He does not seek his glory, his own glory, and the one who seeks the glory of Jesus is the Father. Isn't that interesting? That's how the Father and the Son relate. Jesus seeks to bring glory to the Father, the Father seeks to bring glory to Jesus. And how is Jesus glorified? Jesus is glorified as those who keep his word are rescued from death. That's his word. Those who keep his word won't see death. Jesus gets the glory. We honor him and eternal life. And there's glory for Jesus. 
Now, when Jesus says he will never see death, the Jews misunderstand him again. They take it literally as if, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you become like Enoch or, uh, who was the other guy? Uh, Elijah. Never die, never die, never die. A thousand years still there. Two thousand years still. Well, that's not quite what Jesus is saying. He's not saying there's no death and resurrection. He is saying there's eternal life. Uh, The Jews come to him in verse 52 and say, "Now, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? And Who do you make yourself out to be? Keep on trying to ask about his identity question. Uh, Jesus doesn't choose to correct their misunderstanding about not dying, but he wants to keep them progress in understanding who he is and who the father is. And he says in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say, he is our God. Again, isn't it? We saw that. The Father glorifies the Son. But, verse 55, but you have not known Him, I know Him. If I were to say I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Jesus knows the Father, obeys the Father. And the Father glorifies Him. And then Jesus baits them to make His last point. Right, verse 56, He throws out the Abraham thing again, and He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews back on the day. Right? So verse 57, they go, Ha! Huh? You are not yet 50 years old and you see Abraham. Because 50 years is actually very young. Okay? So they say, you're so young. Right? And you have not seen. Because Abraham was about 2,000 years before this. And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Just now they asked him, are you greater than our father Abraham? They thought, surely he cannot be. And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. An unequivocal, unequivocal claim. To be Yahweh. God of Israel. He's greater than Abraham. He's the God of Abraham. Now, when someone makes a claim like that, what do you do? The Jews are probably angry enough what he said about them. And now he claims to be God so clearly, unambiguously, before their eyes, there is blasphemy. So in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. They want to stone him to death for blasphemy. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were going to kill him for the capital crime of impersonating the God of Israel. So, friends, did Jesus claim to be God? He most certainly did. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Well, friends, as we close, let me summarize just a couple of things. One thing we've learned about God today from John 8, and one thing we learn about us. What do we learn about God? We learn that Jesus is God. That he shares the identity of the God of Israel with the Father. And yet at the same time, he is not the Father. He is sent by the Father, he reveals the Father, he obeys the Father, he brings glory to the Father. Yet he is no less God than the Father. And we must believe in him as God. For unless you believe that I am, Jesus said, you will die in your sin. There is no salvation. And what do we learn about human beings? We learn that we are enslaved. Since we fell into sin, we are by nature slaves of sin. Children of the devil. And our only hope of the rescue from the slavery of sin is through what Christ has done for us. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that can set us free. And we know the truth. Jesus is the perfect God man who died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and rose as Lord. And by his death we can be forgiven. We can be moved from being slaves of sin to being sons and daughters of God. As the risen Lord, he is our leader. He is the light of the world that we and all the nations stream to in order to come into his kingdom. He is the light that we follow that leads us to eternal life. He is the presence of God with us.